Thank you for downloading our podcast. The prophet Hosea receives a strange command from the Lord. The Lord tells him to take a woman of the night to keep it clean for the pulpit. He is to marry a woman who does not protect the marriage bed, and he is to build a house with this unfaithful woman. How can the Lord order a prophet to do something contrary to his own will? What is the purpose of this book? Overall, what is the prophet Hosea teaching us today? Last week, we looked at Hosea chapter 4 and dealt with the religiosity of Israel. That we pointed out that it's not that Israel has a problem of being religious. They certainly are religious, and even as it goes on describing more of the tragedy of what Israel has done, uh, that this is done in the cloud and the deception of claiming that it's a religious experience. And so as we hear this, this is rather tragic. Because when we hear Israel trying to sell it this way, we we understand who we are as a people. That we can think that maybe the people in the Old Testament are so uh, deceived and people that fall into all these sorts of sins. And hopefully as we go through this, we're not falling into these sins because Uh, Israel has fallen pretty far. Uh, There's no uh, delicate way, and that's probably the most delicate way to say it, to be honest. And so when we consider what's going on in the nature of this, part of the thing that we have to understand when we think of Adam at the Garden of Eden is that we can think that sin is going to fulfill, right? I mean, that's basically Satan's doing the greatest marketing campaign that's ever been done. Eat this fruit, your life's going to have fulfillment, you won't need God, you can live completely on your own, and you will just have ultimate life. Well, we, we know that wasn't true at all. And when Hosea goes on, he speaks of Israel like Adam has transgressed my ways. And so what, what we're learning from this text, because yes, I mean, the, the language here is Not necessarily language we want our kids saying around the the dinner table, certainly. Uh, But nevertheless, the Lord's making a point through his prophet. This is the Lord's word. And as he makes his point, he is teaching us something significant about sin. And so what is the fundamental problem of turning from the Lord? I mean, what what has Israel fundamentally done? What, What is so bad? And what is this ultimately teaching us about God's mercy? Because we do want to come back to that reality that God is a merciful God. And so we'll see first unfulfilling sin. We'll see uh, sin's deceived religion and sin's unrelenting consequences. And so let's begin then with uh, unfulfilling sin and what's going on, basically looking at verses 10 and 11. We find that the, we're picking up with the priests And we're picking up with the priests as they represent the people of God. And the fundamental problem here is that the priests have sold out. So the priests expect more and more people are going to enter the priesthood. Uh, The priesthood is growing. And it seems that this priesthood is no longer from the Levitical line. It's just people want to be priests uh, because it's something that's fulfilling for whatever reason. It's not done. Let's be very clear. It's not fulfilling because it's done in the service of the Lord. As we find in verses 1 through 9, it's really done in the service of the flesh. 
Uh, there's a lot of uh, just blatant immorality that's going on at the temple. It's not even hidden uh, is, is really uh, one of the issues, that, that there's just no shame, no concern about sin. It's just, well, this is just what we do, and this is just how it is, and, and it's, it's wrong. It's absolutely immoral. But as they go on, and we think about what, what they desire, while well, we have that they shall eat and are never satisfied, uh, they shall basically uh, engage in procreative activities, to put it uh, nicely, and they're never going to be satisfied, that, that there's no commitment, there's no defense of the marriage bed at all. Now, these things are not necessarily bad. I mean, we, we think of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? I mean, there you have marriage and, and everything is, is blessed. Uh, the marriage bed is to be protected. It's honorable. In fact, there, there's an explicit command by God. They're told to eat. And they eat of the trees in the Garden of Eden. And, and the Lord feeds them and nourishes them and provides for them a variety of foods. Right? It's honorable. So it's not that these things are necessarily sinful in and of themselves. We, we think even eating in terms of a banquet, right? We think in the Psalms, we can think of Job, uh, we can think of the heavenly banquet, of how we gather together, we eat in the presence of God, and, and there's a celebration there, right? We think about the seed of the woman and how the Lord's going to bring about his victory through procreation until the ultimate advent of Christ. These are good things. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is that there is an eating just to eat, uh, there is an engaging in sexual immorality just to engage in it. And it tells us something fundamentally right here in verse 10. They're never satisfied. So you would think that you could just continue to engage in gluttony and continue to engage in all these physical sins and satisfy the flesh. But the text is telling us they're never satisfied. There's no joy. There's, there's nothing that they experience that truly gives them fulfillment. That's the fundamental problem. There is no fulfillment at all. So they desire to increase, but the Lord's going to make it so they don't increase. They desire to have more, but the Lord's going to make it so they don't have any more. He's going to bring them to a place where they have to bow their knee before the Lord. Why are they not going to increase? Why is the priesthood going to die? Because the Lord is cutting it off. See the previous context in what's going on. There is no looking to a redeemer. There is no acknowledgement. They need redemption. The tragedy in Israel laid out right here is that they're trying to find their fulfillment, their joy in an absolute blatant uh, pursuit of sin without any hiding of it. Not to say that hidden sin's better than open sin, but the reality is that there is no shame. There, there's no understanding that, that what they're doing is even wrong. I mean, that's, that's the, the setting of verses 10 and 11. I mean, this is something that should really make us mourn when we think of the people of God as this is setting the stage. There is no understanding. This is wrong. There's no one that stands up and says, no, this, this is not how we ought to live as God's people. 
And so verses 10 and 11 is already setting the stage and sort of preparing us. It's pretty bad. Israel's not living a life in the land they're called to live. They're not living out their unique identity. Israel's not the picture of heaven that it was called to be. And we say, well then, is it just that Israel's become hedonistic, right? Hedonism is a philosophy that a lot of people even today would would say that you just pursue pleasure over pain Uh, whatever's enjoyable whatever's pleasurable is good is worthy of pursuit or is it something more in terms of of religion well it goes on or Hosea goes on in verses 12 through 14 and he tells us some of the issues going on and these are not nice things and they are very difficult things to even hear and to understand what God's people are doing. Uh, Because to be honest and to prepare you, you kind of hear this and say they're doing what? And they think this is acceptable? Uh, So praise God that hopefully when we go through this, that's what we think. Uh, This is clearly uh, wrong. And so what's what's going on? Well, we'll try and keep this as, as clean as we can. But going on, it says, my people inquire of a piece of wood. And we hear that, we might say, well, well, what does that mean? Well, basically, they're just inquiring of a walking stick, right? So that's basically what's going on. It's, it's a staff uh, that basically we would use as a walking stick. We can see people hiking, using uh, these sorts of things to help maintain balance. So we hear that and we say, well, why, why would they be, be looking to a walking stick? I mean, this, this obviously sounds dumb and, and, and silly to us. How, how can they believe this? Well, when you hear what's going on, really it's just trusting in something other than God. I mean, we can have in our day and age a variety of things. One thing we hear is trust the science, right? You never really dig into the substance of it, but we're just told to have this faith claim in, in what's going on. Now, we not saying science is bad or good, but science is really a series of observations. And as we survey these observations and understand the consistency of something, we make rules, we, we make deductions. We say, well, this is what we expect to happen. If I take my iPad and let it go, it's not going to drift up, it's going to fall down because we know, uh, as we've studied this, the law of gravity, etc. But to say trust the science is a religious claim, Right? We're not trusting in observations. We want to trust in the God who has created the world and ordered the world in such a way that as we study it and we find the consistency of things, we say, this is the reality, this is truth, this is what God has created, this is what we deduce from these truths, right? So it's not to say that science is bad and don't do anything with science, but we want to look to the God who has ordered and created the world in such a way that we're marveling at what he has done. And so what's going on with Israel is something very similar. Because what I'm trying to point out is in our day and age, we can have the same sort of statements. Where we're, we're making this statement that's just a broad statement and not really thinking about its implications. But what Israel believed is that there's this goddess Asherah who's the mother of Baal. And this mother is the one who's expressed in the tall trees, symbolizing fertility and strength. And so what they're most likely doing with these walking staffs is they're making them from these particular trees. 
And so as they make it from the trees, they believe that these walking staffs are actually giving them revelation or oracles. And it's not that they would say, well, I don't really trust in, in the staff. I trust in the God who's in the staff, right? And, and predict and uh, presented in the staff. Uh, this is why, for instance, in Deuteronomy 16, verse 21, Israel's not to plant these trees by the altar because they're not to confuse their gods. They're not to worship another god. They are not to set another god at the altar because there is only one true god is the point of Deuteronomy 16. And so as Hosea is presenting this, he's saying, here's the absurdity. You're looking to a god to protect you that you carry in your hand. I mean, think about that. You're walking with this God, moving this God, remembering to take this God with you. Is that really a God? That's, that's what Hosea is pointing out. Are, are you thinking through what, what you're doing? This is not the God of the Exodus. This is not the God who comes to Pharaoh. This is not the God who hears your cries. This is not the God who led you through the wilderness. This is a God that you protect and carry with you. You are the shield and defender of this God. This God's not your shield and defender. And so Israel is so deceived, they have it backwards. Now we can do this, I mean, not only with the example I gave with science, we can trust in our careers, we can trust in self-reliance, we can trust in so many things where we can do the same thing without understanding it as God who provides through the means that he chooses. And so Israel is failing to understand the reality of what's going on. They're pursuing false things. They're pursuing the comforts of this age. And again, verse 11, not finding the fullness of what was promised, but I think we've already made that point. Going on then, we find what they're doing. Well, they're sacrificing in the tops of the mountains. Uh, and so basically, they're, they're selling out. And again, the burnt offerings, they're doing this under the trees that are mentioned. So this is underscoring what we've said with the walking sticks. So in terms of, of this, we're, we're finding more of what the absurdity of what Hosea is doing. We're, we're drawing the, the conclusion of the absurdity of taking a walking stick with you to hear oracles. But now as we go on in verse 13, the first part of it, they're doing this under the shade of the trees. Now, in the ancient Near East, uh, shade of a tree is, is wonderful. We, we can understand that here in Montana uh, in the summer. If we have a hot day, we can certainly tell the difference between being in the sun and being under the shade of a tree. Uh, so it's not that the Lord is saying all trees are evil and cut them all down and we don't want to have the shade of the tree. But what's going on with this shade is that they're trying to hide their deeds. So that seems to be Israel thinking, oh, we'll do this under the tree, or, or so they think. And then the Lord's not going to see it. And so the Lord is sort of mocking them with the shade, that he's saying, oh, this, this shade, what does it do? It protects you from the sun, but it's not protecting you from me. I see what you are doing. I see what's going on in the temple. This shade is not going to protect you in the final day when I come against you or when he takes them out of the land and brings them into exile, as Hosea has warned. They will be reshaped. 
They will be remolded. They will be reformed. And so Hosea is laying out the problem. They think they can hide under the shade of their trees, which becomes a metaphor for their gods. Hosea is saying, your gods won't protect you. Your gods are not stronger than me. The trees are not hiding your deeds. I see it all. Now, in terms of what's going on in verses 13 and 14, uh, this is something that uh, is stomach-turning, to say the least, in what's going on with Israel. Uh, The nicest way to say it is there's a practice of going on with the immorality of the age. Uh, Again, if you're familiar with Peter Jones, if you've read his work on a revitalization of paganism in our culture, there's a pagan practice going on here uh, where basically the future father-in-laws would deflower uh, their daughter-in-laws. And the purpose of that was to facilitate fertility in their mindset. At that, it is absolutely immoral. This is something that the culture is saying this is acceptable, and they're saying this is fine. And so when the Lord brings this to their attention, he's saying, what's happened to my people? I think of Adam and Eve, when when the Lord creates them and brings them together, that this was not the Lord's intention. This is not what the Lord had in the intention of marriage. I mean, this is just blatant immorality. And so the Lord's saying, basically, look at what you have done to the temple, a place that was supposed to be communing with God, showing the glory of God, the goodness of God, and it's become basically a pagan festival, to put it very delicately. But there's a lot of immorality going on in the temple as he cites the cultic prostitutes and the different things happening there. And the Lord's saying, this this is not what I put you in the land to do. I didn't put you in the land to act like Baal worshipers. I didn't put you in the land to act like a bunch of immoral people engaging in blatant immorality. And so this is something, when we look at this, we can say, wow, Israel, so immoral, so bad. But we honestly can look at where we're going as our society and, and where it develops. And Peter Jones's work, as I mentioned, we're not far behind. And so it's something when when we read this, we should really think about ourselves in terms of Christians. I mean, this has to start within ourselves. Where are we tempted to give in? Where are we tempted uh, to basically compromise our Christian call? That's what he's calling us to do, calling us to understand who is our Redeemer? Where is our life? Where is our joy? Where do we find our comfort? What in our lives needs to be in line with the Lord? Because he's pointing out this doesn't necessarily happen overnight. And so as Hosea is bringing this about, he's calling the people of Israel to think about their identity. Now in verse 14, this is a controversial verse, because if you read the first part of it, it says, I will not punish your daughters uh, when they play the, the immoral one, basically, or the whore, as it says in the text. Basically, uh, there's a very minority view that takes this to mean, shall I not punish your daughters? Where it takes it as a rhetorical question. Grammatically, I, I just, I don't see it. I think when we look at this, and, and again, you look at the variety of English translations uh, throughout the ages, and this is the translation they go with. And in fact, the original language 
I, I'm not persuaded that that's a rhetorical uh, question that the Lord is asking. Some take this to be pure sarcasm, which is possible. But I think the scenario that the Lord wants us to pause on and to contemplate is Israel is in a situation like Lamech. If you think about the, the post-fall world immediately in, in what we read in covenant history. So we have Adam and Eve banished from the Garden of Eden. Uh, we have uh, the first martyr of Abel where Cain murders his brother. And then we have Lamech, who is, who is um, Cain's son. Lamech is one who makes this brutal promise of just being an absolute tyrant to his wives. And he wants them to, under know, to understand and to know he's going to be brutal. That's his intention. And then you go on, you read of Genesis 6. And while the immorality that's going on in the world blatantly, Verse 14 or verse 13 seems to be laying out to Israel, this is the situation of what you have become. You were like Lamech. You were like what has happened prior to the fall, and you were placed in this garden to represent heaven and the glory of heaven. And so verse 14, the first part, I, I side with the commentators who take it as, the Lord's going to show mercy uh, to these women who basically would, would almost be what we would say in our day and age are, are human trafficked. That's kind of what's happened. They, they've been broken. Things have happened that are wrong. And so the Lord's going to show some mercy. But nevertheless, the whole nation of Israel is going to face a situation where they are going to be exiled from the land. And so judgment is coming. And so verse 14 goes on to show basically how Israel has emulated uh, Baal worship and fertility gods and these sorts of things that have gone on. Going on then, we say, well, then what about the unrelenting consequences? Is there any hope? And there is some hope as we get to verses uh, 15 through 19, which is why I wanted to go through these verses. Now, it's subtle, but there is hope. So going on in verses 15 through 19, we look at this and we find what Israel has done. Uh, we find, again, there is a call for Israel not to take this stuff down to Judah. And so uh, we have this history of Israel is certain to be, certainly uh, to maintain its separation uh, from Judah and is not to pursue Judah. Um, we have verse 17 with Ephraim being joined uh, to the false idols. So if we take this history, uh, there's an important history that's also being recalled here. Uh, we can think about the history of Jeroboam and Rehoboam. So when uh, Solomon dies, you have his two sons of the promise that the kingdom's going to be divided. Again, with David, there was a promise of turmoil. Solomon, a promise of division in the kingdom. So you have uh, Jeroboam, who's promised to take the ten tribes of Israel, the northern kingdom. And you have Rehoboam, or, or Jeroboam, or Rehoboam, sorry, I get their names mixed up all the time. So you have Rehoboam, who's going to take basically the southern tribe. Uh, so as Jeroboam is promised to take the ten tribes, one of the things he wanted to do was to present or, or to prevent Israel from going down to Jerusalem uh, to uh, make sacrifices and do a pilgrimage in the temple. So what he does, 
uh, Jeroboam sets it up so there's golden calves set up in Israel and Israel is going to engage in this idol worship. And again, you can read uh, this history basically from 1 Kings 10 through 1 Kings 12 uh, with you know, the sending away of the son. Uh, Solomon sends away uh, his son uh, out of jealousy. You have Jeroboam come home. You have all these scenarios going on. So again, if you want to read that history, that's where you can find it. But the issue is that you have an actual, established, conscious practice of worshiping the golden calves up in the northern kingdom. This was done to prevent Israel from going and engaging in pilgrimages to go to their temple in Jerusalem. So just remember that. That's the backdrop of what's going on here. So Ephraim, we think of Genesis 48 with uh, uh, Jacob giving the blessing to Joseph, and as he gives a blessing to Joseph, uh, he blesses his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So Joseph's uh, division of the land is divided between his two sons. These are the favored sons. Ephraim was supposed to be uh, the younger son who would be triumphant. Uh, he receives a greater blessing, and so there's a play there, if you re remember that history, where Jacob crosses his hands because he's blind, and he blesses the younger son Ephraim with a greater blessing than Manasseh. So what we're finding now that Hosea is playing on, so let's back up, we kind of got that history. What Hosea is playing on is Ephraim was to establish the favored portion of the kingdom. But instead we find that it's just completely joined to idolatry as its history began. And as it's joined to idolatry, we find the, the, the problem of what's going on here in Israel. Because now when we go back to verse 15, there's two cities that are identified. We have Gilgal and Bet Avon. And we say, wait a minute, I, I don't remember reading of a Bet Avon in, in Israel's history. What, what, what's going on here? Uh, is this a redaction in the text? Is Hosea false? Is this telling us that Scripture is unreliable, as some say? No, not at all. In order for us to understand this, we also have to understand the history. So Gilgal is a significant place. This is a place in Joshua 4, where Israel is circumcised and reconsecrated to the Lord. And if you remember, the name Gilgal means something significant. Gilgal means roll back. And so Gilgal was a place where Israel rolled back their reproach. They were set in a place where they were reoriented and reformed with a focus of the Lord going into the land to take uh, this place where they would dwell with God. Now in terms of, of that, we understand, okay, so that's Gilgal. Where's Bet Evan? Because this literally means house. So if you read Beth in the English, that means house. And then there's something else. So Bethlehem means house of bread. Beit Al means house of God. Bet Avon means house of iniquity. And you think about that and say, well, house of iniquity in the land of Canaan, a place where they were supposed to expel iniquity, what does this mean? Well, this is a tragedy. Because if you remember when we talked about the, the, the introduction of Hosea, He's a contemporary of Amos. And so Hosea is now coming to the people of Israel and saying, I want to build on what Amos has said and its indictment of you. 
And so in Amos 4 verse 4, he ties Gilgal and Bethel together. And so these two cities are seen as significant cities, and they are. Because Gilgal, place where Israel rolls away their reproach. Bethel, if you remember its, its history, goes back to Genesis 28 when Jacob leaves home. His brother's going to kill him. He's wondering, my goodness, I'm supposed to be the, the child of the promise. And here I am sleeping in the middle of nowhere, wondering what my fate is ultimately going to be. The Lord opens up heaven. The Lord stands beside him, gives a great promise. And Jacob says, truly, God is in this place. Names it Bethel. Bethel, the place of God, the house of God. So these two cities are important, but Amos in 4 verse 4 says, listen, these cities, they're, they're not what they ought to be. They're not living up to their name. And so Hosea is taking on basically what Amos has done and standing on him and saying, yes, Gilgal, the place that rolled back the reproach, what does Gilgal become? It's a place where Israel has rolled into reproach. Bethel is no longer a house of God. It is now house of iniquity. And so Israel then becomes or is called that stubborn heifer, which we dealt with. The Lord's going to try and rein them in in the wilderness so the heifer can't go back to its sin. And so it's basically this stubborn cow that cannot be taught, cannot be instructed. And Israel is like that. And so this is something that as you hear this, you say, well, that's, that's not very nice going on. We have that Israel in verse 18. We have this declaration there that they give themselves over to sin. And rather than repenting and turning from sin, they just give themselves into more sin and continue to love sin, continue to love shame and never find its fulfillment. Verse 19, the wind that Rapsam is again that Ruach, which he has talked about with the spirit of whoredom. And so this wrapping them, this wind, is basically that, that they have been taken in to their complete selling out. That Israel is in a place where they are so broken and so given over to their sin that they just want to pursue it. And they're caught in the horrible cycle of sin, which is something that Hosea wants us to understand what sin does. It never satisfies. It does nothing to snap you out of it. You just want more of it. And as you get more of it, it's even more unfulfilling. And so instead of turning from it, you, you give in to it more only to find more unfulfillment. And so the Lord is laying out the problem of what Satan failed to tell Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The Lord's saying, yeah, you can decide what's right and wrong for yourself. But you know what you're going to do? You're just going to continue to pursue more and more sin. You're going to find less and less satisfaction. You're going to find less and less joy. And so we hear that and we contemplate and say, well, then what's the hope? Where's the peace? I mean, is, is that the message of the gospel? You're just a sinful people and you'll just be more sinful and you'll never find satisfaction and then you just face God's judgment and that's it. I mean, that's a pretty dismal view of life, isn't it? But if we stop there, we miss the subtlety of what I said in the text. Verse 16, the Lord asks an important question. 
Israel the stubborn heifer. Can't teach him. Doesn't want to snap out of it. Wants to continue to pursue their sin. The Lord promised he's going to hedge Israel in. He's going to bring them out to the wilderness, rip them out of all these circumstances and restart, reform them. Like what? Like a lamb in the pasture. Think about the, the subtle beauty, beauty of that picture. Israel, the kicking heifer that doesn't want to be subdued, the angry cow that continues to buck against you and fight you and do everything to make your life miserable. The Lord's going to take these people and reform them in such a way they become a little lamb. And he's going to bring them to the pasture, the picture of Psalm 23, which is why I wanted to read from Psalm 100 but didn't want to steal my thunder. Because that's a beautiful picture of the Lord taking his people like the sheep, bringing them into his holy city, giving us the pasture and the bounty of Christ and what he has done. That's the hope here. Going on, verse 19, the wind that has wrapped them. Now again, that's playing on the, the spirit of whoredom uh, that they've been given over to. It's the same language, ruach, that's going on with uh, Hosea has already warned. But this assurance of this wind is something else. Because in the opening of scriptures, what do we see? It's a ruach, the wind that goes over the chaos of the waters. A very assurance of the recreative power of God. And so when you read Amos 4, this is a tragic time in Israel's history. There, there's no doubt. But the ruach, the Spirit of God, the one who is with his people, who reshapes, reforms, is sent out to the glorious day of Pentecost, is the Spirit that takes his people and guards them. We think about how this wind of sin has wrapped them in their wings, but you think also of how the Lord is presented as an eagle hovering over his people. And so the, the assurance of this is what do we want? Well, we naturally want to our shame, our immorality. We want to pursue it deeper and deeper and deeper. And, and we think it's going to find fulfillment only to find it will never find fulfillment. What's the gospel promise in this? The Lord's not going to leave his people there. The Lord will grab his people by the scruff of their neck and praise be to God that he does this. And he's going to rip us out of it. He's going to take us to places we may not necessarily want to go, right? Israel's going to go into the wilderness. This is what Hosea has said. You're going to be disciplined. You're going to be in the wilderness. And I'm going to lead you through there, and you're going to go through another wilderness testing and exile. But why is the Lord doing that? To grab his people, to save them, to redeem them so they have life. And so the ultimate assurance then when we hear what is the problem of Israel turning from their God? What, what does this ultimately teach us about who we are and what is so bad? Well, it teaches us in a very humble, in a very shocking way, truly shocking, as to how far we can fall if left to ourselves. That's what Hosea is saying. If the Lord leaves you to yourself, you can go here and even further. And he's saying, listen, you're going to get to a place if the Lord lets you go there and you think this is fulfilling. It's never going to be fulfilling. You're never going to find joy in it. 
You're never going to satisfy the hunger and thirst of it. Your appetite will increase and increase and increase, and you will never find joy. Hosea is giving us as a warning to say, that's where sin leads you. And it's a real warning. It's, it's a sincere warning. But where's the hope? The hope is knowing that God, by his providential care, keeps his hand on his people. And as they may be brought to a place this far away, where it seems all is lost, well, what does he promise? I can still bring you back. I can still reshape you. I can still remold you. I can still save you. I can still redeem you. Not all is lost. That's the beauty of the gospel and the power of God's redemptive mercy in what Hosea sang. That even as Israel faces discipline, even as they face exile from the land, Hebrews warns us, the Lord can discipline us too individually. There's not necessarily a one-to-one correlation, I would say, but there certainly is an overlap. And as the Lord can discipline us, why is he doing it? Because he wants to teach us and instruct us that our sin will never be satisfied. And the only way we truly find satisfaction is in the pursuit of what? What does Christ promise? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, because why? They shall be filled. In other words, as we begin with the pursuit of our God, as he has first pursued us and has first conquered us, but as we consciously pursue our God, that's where we find the shalom, the satisfaction, the peace, the joy of his kingdom. Let us then hear the sincere and dire warning that Hosea gives us. But let us also be refreshed in the promise of the glorious gospel that we can never fall so far that our Lord cannot redeem. Let us pursue our God. Let us find our life in our Redeemer. Let us live out of gratitude. And let us understand that life is only found as we pursue our God, finding our comfort and our joy in Him, trusting that He will take the stubborn heifer and bring her into the green and glorious pastures of His kingdom. May we long for those pastures as His redeemed, as we sojourn by His Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshipping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.